I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is the distinguished Dr. Sajin Gohel, the author of the forthcoming book titled Dr. Teacher Terrorist. This covers the story of the global terrorist, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. Dr. Gohel has a Bachelor of Arts in Politics with honors from Queen Mary University of London. He earned his master's degree in comparative politics and his PhD in international history, both from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Dr. Gohel is the international security director for the London-based Asia Pacific Foundation. He is also the editor of NATO's counterterrorism reference curriculum, and he is also the host of NATO's first ever podcast series, Deep Dive. His interests include looking at the ideology and doctrine that feeds international terrorism, the varying tactics and strategies that transnational terrorist groups and border challenges present, and the new role media play in strategic communications for these groups. I know you enjoyed this conversation, so let's jump right in. It is my great honor this afternoon to be able to interview a very distinguished guest, the most distinguished guest I think I've had on this podcast, uh, coming from London, uh, Dr. Saijin Gohel. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be with us this afternoon. And we have a mutual friend in Drayton Wade, who is actually a student of yours at the London School of Economics. And he's having a phenomenal career here in the United States in the technology sector. He's been a, a huge um, uh, fan, uh, or many of our fans have really enjoyed his uh, previous podcast and the insight that he's given. But I am really honored uh, to be able to ask you some questions today. You've got a new book coming out. You've, you have a very distinguished career. You're an expert in global terrorism. You're a lecturer and professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, you also do a, a lot of work with NATO. I've become a fan of your podcast, Deep Dive. Uh, it's a NATO podcast. And uh, for, so for those of you who have not heard that and would like to keep up on uh, uh, global issues, specifically things that are happening uh, in the world of NATO and so forth, uh, it's a, one of those must-listen-to podcasts. But uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to chat with us today, and I really look forward to diving into some of this content that you've prepared. Well, thank you, uh, Bob, for the kind invitation to talk to you in, in your podcast and uh, the very warm introduction. It's, uh, I wish I could uh, permanently record that and play it to people uh, because I think it's a little di different to, to hearing someone talk about me. Uh, so uh, I appreciate that, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, I, I, let's dive right in. I, like, uh, as a former U.S. military officer who served in the United States Air Force uh, post 9/11, uh, you know, I uh, some of my uh, time uh, in, in the military, uh, especially after 9/11, you know, it was it was predicated on you know all the things that were going on in the Middle East. The world changed after 9/11, and um, I. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding, at least I'll, I'll speak for myself, a lot of misunderstanding on some of the, the, th the global politics, the things that were happening within the Middle East. And, you know, we found ourselves embroiled in a protracted war there in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we've had just recently a disastrous exit. Um, I would just, I'd, I'd like to maybe go back to the beginning and really allow you to touch on your areas of expertise as you have spent a career studying this and also studying some of the key players 
in uh, global terrorism. And one of the interesting or the things that I find fascinating is what what type of environment uh, is necessary for a man like Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, the number two al-Qaeda leader behind Osama bin Laden, who was just recently uh, killed in Kabul, Afghanistan uh, this year in 2022. Uh how how does a man like that become a global terrorist? You know, I, as a young Egyptian boy growing up in a very prominent family and a, a, a privileged background, and then all of a sudden you find him leading a global terrorist network. Um, w- give us some insight on the makings of of a man like that. What what happens? Well, Ahmed Al Zawari comes from a very prominent uh, Egyptian family uh, on both sides, his paternal and maternal side. Uh, His relatives uh, were very respected in the field of medicine, in law. Uh, One of his great uncles was uh, the uh, imam at the Grand uh, Al-Azhar Seminary, which is one of the main Islamic seminaries in the world, one of the most uh, prestigious. Uh, He also had another uh, uncle that uh, was the very first secretary general of the Arab League, Uh, And then he had another relative who, uh, being a lawyer, represented the Islamist ideologue uh, Said Qutb, who was infamous in many ways because he wrote the the book Milestones, which inspired a lot of extremists, uh, not just in Egypt, but across the Middle East and in other parts of the Islamic world, including Pakistan. And Said Qutb's notoriety in many ways was because he was one of the first Uh, radicals that actually spent time in the United States in the aftermath of World War II. He was located in Greeley, Colorado, in which he claimed was the cesspool of Western corruption and degradation. And he mentioned that in his uh, uh, articles, his papers, his books. So future would-be extremists would cite Said Qutb as the example of how you had primary source evidence that the United States was the center of all evil. Uh, and Ayman al-Zawari in many ways saw himself as the continuation of Said Qutb's uh, agenda. He grew up in an environment where as a young teenager, he started to take part in radical extremist uh, policies. He was involved in an attempt to hijack a uh, a military college on the outskirts of Cairo, but because of his family connections, they managed to get him off, despite all his co-conspirators being arrested and some even executed. And then Ayman al-Zawari was on the periphery of the assassination of the Egyptian president, uh, Anwar Sadat, mm-hmm. spent time in prison. And in many ways, it's also being in the right place at the right time, or you could conversely say being at the wrong place at the wrong time, depends how you, you look at it. Um, but he spent time in jail. He became the spokesperson for all the extremists that had been locked up in the aftermath of Sadat's assassination. Uh, there's footage of him actually talking in English to the international media. And that gave him his first outlet uh, to the global uh, media. The Egyptians eventually wanted to get rid of a lot of these people because they felt that if they stayed inside the country, they would pose a threat to the Mubarak regime. So it happened to be coincidental that the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan Mm. and they needed to, uh, well, 
the the West in many ways made the mistake of wanting to support the uh, Afghan Arab Mujahideen campaign and a lot of their allies in the Islamic world, including Egypt, assisted in some ways by getting rid of these extremists to go fight in Afghanistan. And that included Ayman al-Zawari, where he ended up forging the now infamous relationship with uh, one Osama bin Laden. And that relationship continued through the 90s and then resulted in the formation of al-Qaeda and then the plotting and planning that led to the most devastating terrorist attack that we know, which was the 9-11 attacks. Mm. And Ayman al-Zawari in many ways continued the, the story because he was involved in many plots to target the West post 9-11. Some were successful, some were disrupted, but he kept evading detection. He, unlike the others from al-Qaeda, knew how to survive, knew how to uh, keep himself safe ultimately. And I guess it's a sense of irony that he finally met his end when he returned to Afghanistan under the protection of the Taliban in the assumption that now that the West has left the country, he would actually be safe. But credit to U.S. counterterrorism efforts, they managed to eventually track him, albeit in the middle of Kabul, in a Taliban safe house, which was only about a few miles away from where the U.S. embassy was. So it just goes to show you all the different dynamics uh, that involved there. And I could talk hours about Ayman al-Zawari, but I guess this is as succinct as I possibly could be. No, it's it's absolutely fascinating. Yes, and it was a, uh, a CIA uh, drone strike, I believe, what was in August 1st or August 2nd of this year. Um, uh, in, in Kabul. But, you know, one of the things that I've heard, and, and there's been lots of discussions, water cooler talk, and as, you know, uh, uh, we in the West look at, uh, you know, what's happened around the globe. We've watched the Arab Spring. We've watched uh, conflict within the Middle East. And a lot of times you know, people are talking and opining on, well, what's the cause uh, of this, these types of events? And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, you know, it's, it's a disaffected youth. It's a lack of economic opportunity and mobility. Um, it, when you have uh, economies that are failing and you have a ruling elite that aren't listening to the people and uh, you can't, the people, the middle class or the, the, the poor classes can't afford gas and bread and they don't have jobs, that this is going to create an environment where somebody could be radicalized to uh, take action. But and, and so I, I can connect those dots and I can kind of see that. But in, in this particular case, here we have a young man who comes from a very prominent family, uh, an elite family, uh, a well-educated family. Uh, he's in a, a, and has probably all the various prospects ahead of him of a, a very good lifestyle and yet found himself, I believe, I think he, uh, as my research shows that he started, he joined his first um, militant group in, in high school for his you know, uh, uh, late high school. And it was also right around the time that I believe it was the, the, 19, the uh, 1967 um, uh, war with Israel was going on, it was the, uh, the Six Days War. Um, so uh, what do you make of that? You know, so do, do, you, do you agree with the fact that um, the, the economic conditions can, today uh, are, are creating an environment for radicalization? But hey, how do we look at somebody who came from a very uh, wealthy or elite background? I, mean, I guess Osama bin Laden was uh, very similar, came from a very prominent family. You know, what's happening with that group 
um, an individual to cause them to say, you know what, I want to take action against my ruling government and uh, action against other governments around the world. Well, there are so many variables that can impact on why people get radicalized. Very often there is that assumption that there are socioeconomic conditions that may trigger people to get radicalized because they feel there's no other opportunity, there's corruption uh, and nepotism in certain parts of the Middle East where the opportunity to succeed is, is therefore hindered based on who you are and who you may be connected to. You have a chance, but if you're not, then you're not going to get the opportunities uh, that could be afforded to, to some. The thing is that a lot of the people that uh, ended up becoming the senior leadership of al-Qaeda. So Ayman al-Zawari, you mentioned Osama bin Laden, some of the hijackers of 9-11. They actually came from very uh, well-established uh, families, uh, middle class, upper middle class. They were educated. They had the families. They had all the financial support. But ultimately, they bought into a ideological doctrine, a very dangerous one that had been forged through centuries from various different ideologues, medieval scholars, sometimes doctrine that was used and often misused uh, for the purposes of uh, terrorism. So all these different individuals came together and they forged their ideas through the legacy of the Soviet defeat in Afghanistan. And it encouraged them to believe that if they could defeat one superpower, the potential to uh, ultimately drive out another superpower, as in the United States, from its influence in the Middle East and across the Islamic world could be a potential. There was often this debate that occurred within the jihadist movement about do they focus on the near enemy? And when I say the near enemy, that's a term that was coined by the jihadists themselves, which was ultimately looking at uh, the regimes in the Middle East, in the Islamic world, or the so-called far enemy, uh, which is referring to the West and principally the United States. So that seemed to swing back and forth in the 1990s like a pendulum. Ultimately, what al-Qaeda concluded was after the attacks on the U.S. embassies in Africa, in uh, Kenya and Tanzania, and then also the attack on USS Cole uh, in, near Yemen, that the US was not reacting, that the US was not pursuing these attacks beyond a point, dropping missiles here and there, limited damage to Al-Qaeda. But what they were concluding was that they could perhaps actually take the conflict to the US mainland. And 9-11 was, sadly, unfortunately, the the consequence of that thinking. But the people that planned it, they didn't have any socioeconomic grievances. Mm -hmm. They had an ideological agenda. And one thing that I only came to the conclusion about later when I started researching this was that, yes, the attack was on the U.S. mainland, but it was also an attack on a value system. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was perhaps the most telling dynamic of what al-Qaeda's uh, attack had. It wasn't just about killing people, which it did, killed thousands of innocent people, and also those that were affected through illnesses that came in the aftermath of the two, of the two uh, World Trade Center buildings collapsing. But it was also about creating 
economic and political and social tensions as well. Uh, we often look at the casualty count when it comes to an attack, but you've also got to factor in the other dynamics that come into it. And that also is part of a wider ideological agenda. Well, it's interesting that you track some of this all the way back to um, the jihadist and the Muj I guess the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan and the defeating the Soviet Union and them then all of a sudden having this realization it's like hey we've defeated one superpower maybe we can defeat more superpowers and then they see the United States as maybe a paper tiger uh, during the 90s of really not doing much um, with these various terrorist attacks around the, the globe and so they decide to, hit, to strike the homeland and that leads me to uh, the question about your viewpoint of the uh, exit that we just had in Afghanistan. As I, if I've talked to my friends that are in the, the U.S. military that are still serving, as we've heard uh, multiple commentators and government officials talk about this, um, almost unanimously here within the United States, when we take a look at that withdrawal, uh, I have not heard one person who has said, hey, that was a, a successful exit. We did it. It was textbook. We did it perfectly. It was quite the opposite. Most people are like, man, this was an, an unmitigated disaster and how we did this. Um, do you share that viewpoint? Um, do you have a different insights on there? And would does this embolden uh, people who have nefarious intentions in the Middle East to say, hey, look, you know, once again, we beat another superpower. Does does is this going to create more tension in the Middle East? Do you believe? I feel very sad about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how it was handled because it didn't have to be the way it was. I actually had written an article for Foreign Policy magazine in January of twenty twenty one, where I expressed huge concern that. I can see the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan unfolding and that it potentially would be as bad or worse than the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan because it was just like a slow motion car crash waiting to happen. The Taliban uh, who signed the Doha deal with the United States were violating it from the moment they signed it. They promised that they would not allow al-Qaeda to operate on its territory. And yet they were using al-Qaeda to act as an auxiliary arm to its offensive in taking control of the country. They said that they wouldn't engage in other nefarious actions like narcotics, drug trafficking, human trafficking. They did exactly that because it was funding their agenda. The thing to remember here, Bob, is that a lot of lives were lost uh, in Afghanistan, especially U.S. lives, and the costs were astronomical. But where I would say a major change was made was in 2014 when President Obama ended combat operations and turned the mission in Afghanistan into what was known as the Resolute Support Mission. So what that meant was that Western troops would act as a backup to Afghans on the ground for their operations. And what transpired thereafter was that fatalities came right down. The costs also came down as well. And we were at a strategic stalemate with the Taliban. We were never ultimately going to be able to beat them. And that's because they were be being given sanctuary and support within Pakistan 
by Pakistan's military who kept playing this very dangerous game with the West where they would harbor them because they saw the Taliban as potentially giving them strategic depth inside uh, Afghanistan. So we couldn't defeat the Taliban as a result of that. But what we could do was make sure that they were not able to take over the entire country. We had a, a base there. We had a strategic position there. We could also ensure that the region uh, was relatively secure, despite there being attacks. What it meant was that they couldn't plot and plan attacks, whether it was al-Qaeda or affiliates, on uh, the West, which they were able to pre-9-11. Mm -hmm. And by giving up that, uh, that strategic position, what has happened is the systematic collapse of Afghanistan, the security forces uh, eroded very quickly, partly because they lost confidence mm -hmm. that the, the, the West had abandoned them. Right. And the Taliban, in the space of just a few months, undid all the hard work that coalition troops did in 20-plus years. And the thing that worries me the most is the fact that women's rights has collapsed completely in Afghanistan. The Taliban have taken that away. They have turned Afghanistan as a misogynistic state like it was uh, prior to 9-11. And here is where the worry is, is that when you see a rise in misogyny and a reduction in women's rights, you see the proliferation of extremism. Mm -hmm. Wherever you see misogynistic rule, extremists tend to grow and assert themselves. That happened in Afghanistan in the 1990s. It happened in Iraq and Syria under the control of ISIS post-Arab Spring. And you're potentially seeing that again because there are some young individuals that are motivated by the violence, the propensity of violence that they can inflict on women. So ideology is kind of used as the justification to uh, inflict physical harm upon women itself. And as Afghanistan is now run by a cartel of misogynists, it doesn't bode well for uh, the country's future stability. And it also doesn't bode well for us, because at some point you may find that foreign fighters will want to go there for the the trappings that are provided to uh, extremists. Uh, and you're looking at the rise of narcotics, the proliferation of human trafficking. A, there is a, a very, uh, there's a very warped run government mm -hmm. because who are the ones that are controlling Afghanistan? It's the faction of the Taliban known as the Haqqani Network, led by Siraj al Haqqani. The Haqqani Network are responsible for killing more American soldiers in the last 20 years than any other entity on this planet. Very often we focus on what Iran does, and Iran does a lot of things that are deeply concerning. But if you want to look at an actual casualty count, the Haqqanis have done more damage to the United States than anybody else. They are a prescribed terrorist group. They are the ones running Afghanistan. Siraj al-Haqqani is the interior minister. His brothers, uncles, 
relatives control other portfolios inside uh, the government. These are the people that, by the way, let Ayman al-Zawari back into the country and have given safe sanctuary to not just Ayman al-Zawari, but also to other members of al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda's affiliated groups like AQIS. So when you have terrorist sympathizers and prescribed terrorists actually running Afghanistan, you can imagine the potential of what that could be for international security down the road. They have connections globally, and it can once again become a, a home base for growing of future terrorists and terrorist operations globally. How do you view the West's viewpoint of uh, operations within the Middle East and specifically Afghanistan over the 20 plus years? It feels to me that there's a lot of people in America, I'm going to speak, I'm going to have a US centric point of view here for a second. A lot of folks in the West, the United States, that want to put it in the rearview mirror and almost want to forget about it. Like it's, it was a bad memory. We're like, oh, this is, we want to forget about this. And now we want to, our, our attention is so focused on Ukraine and what's happening in the South China Sea with Taiwan and China. And I'm worried that we are not having adequate discussion about what did we learn? Where did we fail? What are the things that we should be walking away from? Um, and having a better understanding. And uh, I know this is a multifaceted question for you, but what concerns you about the United States and the West uh, not spending time to actually consider all these things? And what are the things that you think that we should be learning at this moment uh, with what happened over the last 20 years? It's worth remembering that the United States gave blood, sweat, and tears to Afghanistan and poured in a huge amount of effort, resolve, finance to help that country. Uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, it, it is something that is very tragic that has unfolded there. And many people are sad by what has taken place. And it may, I also understand the need that, that some have, that they want to keep it in the rear mirror. Uh, often, I think about the, can I just forget about it? Is there some way that I can suffer amnesia of some kind, I don't have to think about uh, Afghanistan, uh, that this is like some bad nightmare. The problem is, is that every time you close your eyes, you think about what has transpired in that country. And there are a lot of other major geopolitical challenges that are existing, which do require the attention of the West and especially the United States. Uh, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine has taken up a significant amount of bandwidth. And it is very important to support Ukraine in their effort against the Russian aggression, because if not, it is only going to motivate Russia to think about other places it could expand its tentacles into. Uh, from the Kremlin perspective, they look at Ukraine as a platform. It's not going to end in Ukraine. So it's very uh, positive to see how the West has come together when it when it's addressed the Russian aggression inside uh, Ukraine. The China dynamic is unfolding as we speak, and it's one of those things where it hasn't totally become clear as to what the West's goal is in dealing with China. There's talk about containing China, but we have to define 
what that actually means. I don't think it's been properly spelt out. China is seen as a strategic competitor. We talk about great power competition, but does that involve purely the economic concern, political, military, social, all of the above? It's one of those things that I think we're still trying to find our way in seeing where that's going to develop. One thing the U.S. has pursued, which is, I think, very important, is the development of what's known as the Quad, which is this four-nation movement organization, perhaps in the future, uh, which is the United States, Australia, India, and Japan. And this is where you've got four large democratic nations, large economies coming together, similar shared values. And China often features in the conversation with those four countries. So that's another thing that will take up a lot of time in the U.S., the Indo-Pacific tilt, that actually we've been hearing about even before 9-11. But then many different things took place, which I guess put it in uh, a second, third place, but now perhaps is gaining more prominence. The concern, going back to, I guess, your original point, is that does this mean counterterrorism suffers? Potentially, yes. I often hear in conversations with practitioners that counterterrorism doesn't necessarily have the same level of intensity and focus by the decision makers uh, in various Western capitals that perhaps it once did. And that's partly because we're not seeing attacks on our doorstep in the same way we had seen before. Where I think this is dangerous is that after Osama bin Laden was found in Abbottabad in Pakistan, near the Pakistani military uh, academy, everyone wrote the obituary of Al-Qaeda. And we saw within a couple of years the emergence of ISIS and a whole new dynamic of terrorism that was not previously anticipated. So again, I think it is concerning that some are prematurely dismissing counterterrorism as a priority. Uh, Resources will always decide where the focus is. And I would just, I guess, make the last point that we shouldn't look at these different issues like Russia, China, counterterrorism and competition with each other. In many ways, we are going to have to straddle all of them together uh, because they are all going to be a concern and a challenge uh, as we move forward. And one may end up being a greater priority in one year than the other, but they are the conceivable threats that we face. Yes, it it, it took a 9-11 type of event to get the United States to pivot away from the, the idea of nation state conflict and into, I mean, it was a remaking. I was in the military when this was going on. It was, we wa- I watched the military get remade over the course of a few years to be more nimble, to be uh, fight um, in different locations, you know, small insurgencies. I mean, it was the, uh, it was a very interesting time to be in service and to see how quickly everything was pivoting towards uh, terrorism and counterinsurgency and things of that nature. And, and now it feels like the, the pivot is going back the other direction uh, to face against you know, big nation states like uh, Russia and specifically China. 
now that everybody's focus is in, in those two sectors, right? So we've got the the, the conflict in Ukraine. We have uh, saber rattling and tensions in the South China Sea. It gives kind of a little bit of sanctuary for Al Qaeda and ISIS to maybe um, rebuild, reconstitute itself. I mean, has Al Qaeda announced who their leader is now that they've lost their um, their leader? And you know, how do they differ, right? So I know that uh, ISIS was really focused on kind of creating its its own version of a nation state there within the Middle East, which was very different from what Al-Qaeda was trying to do. Um, where do you think both of these organizations go? And, and, and what should we be doing right now to uh, remain vigilant on, on, that, on those threats? It's interesting because in many ways, both groups are learning from each other through setbacks and failures. The fact is that since Ayman al-Zawari was killed, al-Qaeda has not announced his successor. But that should not surprise us entirely because al-Qaeda is not a single monolithic group. You have different franchises, branches across the the Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Pakistan as well. So al-Qaeda... Uh, in the Indian subcontinent, AQIS, Al-Qaeda, in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda, in the Islamic Maghreb, they've all got their own leadership, cell structure, financing, direction. And maybe one of the reasons why they're not necessarily announcing a successor is that they're following the blueprint that Ayman al-Zawari laid out over the last few years, which is, to use the term he coined, was safe bases. And that is that al-Qaeda does not want to, at the moment, target the West because it's not in a strong enough position to sustain the potential repercussions. So what Ayman al-Zawari was articulating to his followers was build yourselves up locally, win the trust of the people that are around you, marry into local families, grow, develop your own funding streams, become self-sufficient. And if over time you're able to attain that, then the next stage should be to look at where do you then launch your operations? Do you go after the regimes in the Middle East uh, as one did in the past? Do you target Western interests in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Middle East? Or do you actually then take the battle back to the West itself? So that part we haven't reached as yet. Right now, it's this safe basis strategy that is unfolding. And in many ways, they've learned from the mistakes that ISIS made. ISIS grew too quickly, became far too ambitious, and suddenly thought that they could tackle the West, that they could take them on. Uh, And they became overly uh, confident that their caliphate would sustain and maintain uh, itself. It required huge Western intervention to dismantle the ISIS caliphate. Mm. But ISIS continues to operate uh, also with its affiliates in Africa. In many ways, where there's a real interesting battle going on is in sub-Saharan Africa, in places like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, where you've got ISIS and al-Qaeda affiliates fighting each other for t- territory, for, for power. Uh, and they are very strong in uh, the Sahel region of uh, of Africa. You've also got 
ISKP, the Islamic State of Khorasan province, which operates in Afghanistan, which has very murky ties with uh, the Taliban factions. On one day, they'll kill each other, and the next day, they'll collaborate because they share the clan connections and the kin uh, family relations and things like that. So these different entities are currently trying to find a path that they want to go down. Uh, and a lot of it will come down to Western patience and resolve in the sense that they will check and test the West at some point down the road. And if they don't get a reaction, they may feel that they can once again extend their operations. It's history potentially repeating itself because everything is always in cycles. Uh, and we are potentially seeing that cycle restart once more. So the concern would be that if we get too complacent, thinking that these groups are just going to stay local, they might start also getting more ambitious over time. So the game plan is to kind of go undercover, grow, reconstitute, have a position of strength, and um, see where opportunity presents itself in the future. Do you feel that Africa is going to be the new focus for territory and operations? Is the, is the center of gravity changing from the Middle East to Africa? Or, or what's your prediction there? Well, in many ways, the problems in Africa have been percolating for a while, but they just didn't get the attention that they needed to. But if we look at the countries that... I was mentioning, such as Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, there are all kinds of problems that are there with terrorist groups. They are carrying out attacks almost on a daily basis. Uh, and these groups are not just interested in ideological agendas. They are motivated by money. They're involved in criminal enterprise. And there's a lot of money to be made through shadow front companies that exist there, including also human trafficking, uh, which is very sad to say. You've got other areas of concern, such as Somalia and northern Mozambique, where there are different terrorist groups uh, growing in the ascendancy that are tied to either Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS as well. So in many ways, the problem is not necessarily focused on one or two places like it was before. It's become far more diffuse. And that doesn't make it easier. It actually makes it harder to track every single entity that may be growing, especially if the perspective in certain capitals around the world is that CT is no longer as prevalent uh, of a priority as it once was. Early on in the, our conversation, you talked a little bit about the ideology that uh, had been formulated uh, over the centuries to potentially uh, impact uh, and radicalize uh, individuals, whether it came from uh, economic hardship or if it came from even uh, those from an elite background. Uh, it, it strikes me as I do a little bit of reading on these on the belief systems that a lot of times these stand in stark conflict with accepted ideologies of the day of other, uh, say, developed countries. Is this... How do how do we address this? Is 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 this a a, a time of where you say is the only way to address this through military action? Is there a way to have conversation and for education 
um, and to have and have other methodologies of going about and, and having conversation with people and uh, trying to win the hearts and minds and influence? Or is this just a situation where it's like, hey, Bob, these are just two competing worldviews. They are diametrically opposed. They cannot live in relation with one another, and there's just going to be conflict. How, where, where do you stand on that? Well, it's one of those things where it depends often where that ideological movement is growing and what the situation is like on the ground and mm-hmm. what those entities are doing in winning agendas locally in terms of the communities that may either be supporting them or be held hostage to them. Uh, I don't believe that these extremist terrorist groups have mass worldwide following, but what they do have is a hardcore base, which uh, is enough to give them the opportunity to breathe, to grow, and then potentially, if left unchecked, uh, proliferate. And the problem with the ideological messaging is that it's based on the past. It's based on uh, perceived glories that existed centuries ago. Uh, The imagery of what was allegedly a better time, uh, which has been subsequently undermined by Western colonization or however they want to frame it, which is the subjugation of their uh, identity, uh, which evokes very powerful, emotional, often reactions. And that is something that, again, people like Ayman al-Zawari has been very uh, effective in communicating, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about him for my my book, because he was just somebody that no one actually had written about, oddly enough. Um, so many books on al-Qaeda, but not on bin Laden's long-term deputy, and then the lo- perhaps the longest-serving mem- leader of al-Qaeda subsequently after bin Laden was killed. So I was trying to then also think about, for example, how do I title the book? Because there's so many different ways to describe him. Uh, and I got eventually got the idea from the FBI poster off Zawari, uh, because his description is in there, mm. uh, and his different roles and his aliases. So eventually I came up with the main title, which is Doctor, Teacher, Terrorist, uh, of which he is all three. Uh, and then the subtitle is... Uh, the life and legacy of uh, the of Al Qaeda leader Ayman al Zawari, because he is laying that legacy as we speak. Uh, and some people will say he's not as charismatic as Bin Laden; that he's more dogmatic; that he doesn't have the ability, the gravitas to create that long-term uh, agenda. I'd agree on the part that he's not as charismatic has been Laden. There's no doubt about it, uh, that uh, Zawari can be extremely uh, dogmatic in his mm. in his views. He is a micromanager. But the one thing he was able to do was sustain himself for mm. several decades. There are not many terrorists that can actually claim to have been an active terrorist for five decades, uh, but he is one of them. Uh, and you're looking at somebody who ultimately, whatever Al-Qaeda turns out to be, it's not going to be bin Laden's legacy. It's going to be Zawari's legacy. What's one of the things that the West misunderstands about the man? Well, 
very often people want quick answers to knowing an individual. And with Bin Laden, it was very easy to perhaps decipher who he was, uh, develop a picture of him. And because Bin Laden was uh, very uh, emotional and uh, uh, he was able to perhaps get more focused by people in developing an understanding as to who he was. Whereas with Ayman al-Zawari, because he's often long-winded, sometimes his statements and his speeches can go on for hours, and I myself can get bored from hearing that. But then I think we have to remind ourselves that we're not his target audience. He doesn't care if we are enthralled by what he says or not. He is appealing to others. And what perhaps is surprising and where people often overlook it is that the young generation that venerate al-Qaeda, uh, they see them as veterans, as the people that initiated the war against the West. They look at Ayman al-Zawari as being the last uh, major key individual within the original gang that was uh, al-Qaeda. So they are galvanized by what he has to say and how he communicates. And even if he does uh, bleat on for a very long time, he was able to have a degree of gravitas. And he may be dead, but his speeches are available. His books and doctrines are still there online, even though they uh, have been taken off most websites. People know ways to find them. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other thing, what I was mentioning earlier to you about the safe basis doctrine, that is something that we really should not ignore because it's a very clever idea by him. He talks about building slowly, steadily, do it without attracting or drawing too much attention, uh, quiet growth uh, effectively uh, by stealth. And that is something that uh, we should be paying attention to because with all the noise that comes from groups like ISIS, that will attract more attention, but it also led to ISIS getting taken apart, mm -hmm. whereas Al-Qaeda continued the path of regrowing. What impresses you most about him as you uh, study his life? And you, you mentioned a moment ago that, and it sounded like you're pretty impressed that he was able to be a global terrorist for so many years on the run and kind of survive. That's a very difficult thing to do. What was most impressive as you study this man? Well, I don't know if I was necessarily uh, impressed, but I was definitely concerned as to his endurance mm -hmm. and his ability to constantly survive. Uh, that survival skill of his was unique, mm -hmm. and no one comes close uh, to the comparison of being able to constantly evade uh, the Reaper uh, as he was able to. This is a man who spent time in prisons, whether it was in Cairo or in the Caucasus, where he was randomly arrested by Russian authorities in the 90s, who then released him, not knowing who he was. This is a person who, throughout the 9-11, post-9-11 period, would face numerous drone operations, and he would get out just before those drones would would target him. This was the person where 
there was an operation conducted jointly by the U.S. and Jordan to uh, send in what they thought was a double agent who would work for them to find Ayman al-Zawari. He flipped it, turned that double agent into a triple agent, who then became a suicide bomber and then killed those U.S. personnel uh, and uh, in, in coast uh, at forward base Chapman, you may remember. Mm-hmm. I think it was around Christmas period, so over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he was very smart at constantly protecting himself. Uh, and I don't think he's ever really probably been given enough credit for just how capable he was, because everyone looks at him as the as the old, fastidious, somewhat boring ideologue, which, he, again, he is. There's mm-hmm. no getting away from that. But boring people can also be successful people mm-hmm. at what they do. What's the title of your book? Once again, um, Dr. Dr. Teacher Terrorist. Dr. Uh, Teacher the Life Terrorist. and Legacy of Al-Qaeda Leader Ayman al-Zawari. Is that going to be, uh, that's coming out this year, right? 2023, is that correct? So it's coming out in 2023, uh, hopefully in the first half of 2023, and it's uh, being published by Oxford University Press. Oh, fantastic. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, and I'm sure people are going to want to grab that. What, what's a, before we dive into just, just briefly a little about your uh, academic background and as a student of history and a uh, not a professional historian, but I did get my undergraduate degree at the University of Tennessee, a Bachelor of Arts in History. So I'm a, um, a an aspiring historian, but n- nothing on your level. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Final question on the book. What is it that you hope your readers remember or get out of that book? The, you've, you've put a lot of work into it. Yeah, this is a very important topic. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people of various backgrounds that read that, but what's what's one of the main things that you would like people to walk away remembering and knowing and thinking about after reading this book? In many ways, it touches upon what we're next going to talk about, and that is learning from history, uh, which is so important that without history, we are nothing. And in, if we uh, allow ourselves to be complacent about a problem and thinking that it's gone away when it actually hasn't completely, then we, we, we can potentially suffer terrible consequences as we saw on, on 9-11. And I guess the other thing, Bob, would be that the entities that enabled al-Qaeda, that protected al-Qaeda, uh, are still there in Afghanistan, as in the Haqqani network and other members of the Taliban. And in my book, I talk about that tight relationship that exists. One of the things that we don't always focus on is just how loyal the Taliban, the Haqqani network have been with Al-Qaeda. Loyalty to an extent that I have not seen in any other comparison. And what do I mean by that? The Taliban, the Haqqanis, they refused to hand over bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawari in the 90s. They refused to do so after 9-11. They gave them protection and sanctuary in Pakistan uh, post 9-11. They did it right up till the fact that Ayman al-Zawari was found in uh, Kabul uh, just uh, uh, in, in 2022. So think about the fact that that relationship is so strong and it continues to endure even now. Uh, And hopefully the book demonstrates the fact that 
we need to learn from history, mm -hmm. but also that there are a lot of bad people that are still active. Uh, and it would be wrong to assume that the problem has gone away. Fantastic. And that's Ayman al-Zawari's legacy, ultimately. And unfortunately, it lives on today. It does. It very much does. Uh, and it's uh, going to morph and proliferate in ways we may have seen before, and also in ways that we can't anticipate. Just like with the way ISIS emerged, it wasn't something that everyone could have predicted, uh, how al-Qaeda in Iraq would end up becoming ISIS. So there could be entities that are yet to form, but the building blocks of it are starting. Um, so some things are anticipated and some things are not, and that perhaps makes it more frightening. Let's dive into your uh, career at, and uh, love of history. I was listening to your podcast, uh, Deep Dive, and one of the latest episodes you were interviewing uh, a guest and you were talking about the importance of history and your guest was talking about the, um, I believe it was like he was using the analogy of a pyramid and, the, and history is the foundation upon which so much understanding can be uh, built uh, for our understanding of the world today. Uh, were you always uh, a, a fan of history as a, as a little boy, as you were growing up? Is this what you wanted to do? Is that you were inspired to be a historian? Um, you know, what turned you on to uh, this particular subject and career path? Well, this is such an important question that you raise. I hope I'm going to be articulate now in how I answer it. I always found history important, but I don't think I necessarily adopted it as my first love initially. It was almost like that friend in in, in the distance, uh, but one that you didn't necessarily always have time for because you wanted to be with the more popular political science or international relations. And over time, and I may get into trouble now, but over time I began to realize that political science and international relations, they may be cool on the surface, but they don't have the substance. They don't have the depth that history provides. Uh, I think history is life. It is so all-encompassing. You can look at the past to understand the present in order to try and prevent the future from being bad and adverse. Uh, and I think the, the discipline of history provides you with so much uh, skill sets in terms of looking at things analytically, understanding how entities, problems occur, and thinking about ways to try and prevent the situation from repeating itself. And it's not overly complicated either. It's not a discipline that really re requires you to spend years of training. It can suddenly be your ally, your friend, your supporter uh, throughout your life. And I became very passionate in my defense of history. It's something that I inculcate to all my students, that I tell them that it doesn't matter what your nationality is, your religion, your gender, you can have all those different attributes. But what you must have in addition is to be a proud historian. That has to be part of your identity. It's what connects us, whether you are from the United States or the UK or France or Egypt or Malaysia, wherever it is, if you're a historian, you are tied 
to that discipline and it will help you not just in your studies but in your work in your everyday life well so well said uh i so much better than i could have ever articulated if anybody had asked me that question i'll i'll share with you my uh, i've spent the majority of my career once i got out of uh the military in the business world and i found that the uh history for me my undergraduate degree in uh, contemporary european history uh, it really, I think, ignited a lifelong desire to be a lifelong learner. And I, I just found myself constantly asking questions. And anytime I uh, started to feel like I had an understanding about a particular viewpoint or subject matter, uh, one of the things that I learned through my history studies was, well, make sure you get on the other side. Make sure you're looking at th that, that historical event or this particular issue from multiple lenses, multiple viewpoints, because there's always a different point of view. And understanding those many competing points of view on that one issue is extremely important to be able to get to the truth. And so I think it's uh, imbued in me uh, a healthy degree of questioning. And just I'm constantly asking questions and wanting to see the other point of view. And I, I've, for me, I found it to be invaluable in business uh, and life in general. Uh, for young people, that are listening to this and and considering pathways in their career. Uh, any words of advice for for young people who? I mean, right now it's very um, uh, the, the 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 rage the is to go into STEM related fields, right? There's a lot of growth in technology in Silicon Valley and and so forth like that. And I think sometimes it can be uh, some of the, the some of the classics uh, it can get overlooked. And I've found that it has been, you know, whether it's uh, philosophy or history, uh, that it, you can build a very successful career by studying in those disciplines and, ha and having those skill sets uh, as you move into your career. Would you agree or do you have insight on that? Yes, I would very much agree with what you're saying. And when people want to decide about their career path, you have to make that decision off is the end goal to pay the bills? Is the end goal to do something that you want to enjoy? Or is it to have both, to be able to do a discipline that you wake up in the morning looking forward to tackling? And hopefully that can lead to a future in, in, in employment. And that's predominantly one of the reasons why I actually teach is because one of my biggest frustrations after my PhD, which I got back in 2009, was I used to complain to my tutor who oversaw my PhD that there are just not enough historians in counterterrorism or in international security, that there are a lot of people that just don't understand the different dynamics, the, the, the historical perspective as well. And uh, she gave me the best advice I think I've ever had, which was that, well, why don't you teach? You know, why don't you help provide that pathway for historians to go into the field of uh, international security. And for me, it's probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because it is so satisfying to see so many of your students, dozens of your students go into very interesting uh, and diverse careers that involve uh, uh, international security and also getting more women in the field as mm -hmm. well, because I think that's what's been lacking is that International security, for many reasons, has tended to be a male 
uh, reserve. And we, I think that has been a huge detrimental uh, dynamic that has hurt our ability to be effective when it comes to protecting uh, societies. So the other thing was to have more women involved. And that's the other thing I'm really pleased about is to seeing so many more women engaging in the, the field of international security, but through the discipline of history, uh, which is so important. And I guess the other point I would just make is when uh, I see this a lot from students who are thinking about where they want to go to university, and they always talk about political science, or they talk about IR, because it sounds good. And that's where I think it's interesting, because a lot of students I know who take some uh, courses in those disciplines, they end up telling me they just regret it because they didn't realize that it was so theoretical, uh, that it was too abstract, that it's all about uh, theoretical models, but you're not actually learning about real events. Uh, and I think that's where history is so important is because anything that is theoretical, it has to be based on real events. It has to be grounded on what is taking place around the world. And History has helped me in all my different uh, uh, work-related events that I've done. So if, say, on a Monday I'm teaching students at university, by Wednesday I could be in Australia. Friday I could be in Nepal doing primary research. Again, it's all history. Uh, so, so many things to say that are positive about being a historian uh, and sometimes, look, luck plays a role, too, whether an opportunity comes your way. It's not always going to be uh, easy, but that's also the fun is the challenge, the, the difficulty in getting to a place of satisfaction uh, is, is in itself rewarding because you've had to fight for that. And I think that's why historians are very well placed to do that. Well, you're uh, navigating many uh, different uh, places in the economy right now as a, a teacher professor at a very prestigious university there, the London School of Economics, where uh, our mutual friend Drayton Wade uh, graduated. Uh, you're the security international security director for the London-based Asia-Pacific Foundation. You're the editor of NATO's counterterrorism reference curriculum. Uh, consultant. So you're doing. You're, you're you're involved in so many different things. The what advice would you give young people in terms of skill sets that you see are so critical in today's economy? Well, if people are interested in, in international security, I think one of the key skill sets, something you spoke about, is a strong sense of inquiry, is looking at a situation and trying to understand why that's happened and look at it from all perspectives uh, and also back to front, uh, forward and future. Uh, how you see it evolving. Do you see similar examples that you can draw a typology in in unpacking that could then be explained um, to others? I mentioned to you luck also. I think that is something that has has played a role in in my in my life and that sometimes you are in the right place at the right time. You meet people that, help shape your thinking, that give you positive advice that you can can take on. Um, one person I have to mention is, um, the, is Nick Pratt, who was a U.S. Marine colonel um, who actually created the uh, one of the major counterterrorism courses at the George C. Marshall Center in Garmisch-Partenkirchen in Germany. 
Um, he uh, gave me so much good advice as I was developing in my career, and I I owe him a lot. Tragically, he passed away some years ago, uh, but his words always uh, ring in my head, and it's something that I continue to to take with me. And that if you get an opportunity, you've got to seize it. Mm. Um, but the other thing my father was always telling me is you've got to be humble as well. Uh, that be dignified when you have setbacks. Uh, if someone else does better than you, uh, congratulate them, give them their moment, make them feel special that something positive has happened, even if it's not gone your way. And then at the same time, be magnanimous when positive things do happen in your career. So humility was the other thing that I think is very important that my father was always very keen to impress upon me. And the other thing would be is that often you have to see what roles come your way. Do they lead to uh, actual experience? So when people talk about internships as a career starting point, sometimes those internships won't pay. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be a, a reason not to do it. But if, for example, you get a prestigious internship, but your only role is to fetch coffee and photocopy large amounts of documents, you have to question what is really the purpose of that. Yes, you can put it on your CV, but you've learned nothing mm -hmm. in the process. There may be other places where you're actually gaining primary experience, where you're getting more uh, knowledge. One thing I try and do with my teaching is that if I find that some of the students that have been really engaging across the year, they've worked really hard, their work ethic is strong, their ability to deal with deadlines is good, I bring them in to some of the work we do uh, with NATO um, and uh, give them that opportunity uh, as, as, a, as an entry point to see if they actually would like to do this long term in some capacity in international security um, as well, because I don't want to just teach. I want to also help uh, provide that outlet for, for students. So there's so many different dynamics that come into this uh, for, for young people. Um, soak up as much information as you can is the other thing I would say is that uh, there is never enough information that you can have. Uh, and always know that you have to keep learning. And I would apply that to myself. I don't claim to know everything and I'm constantly finding on my travels especially since the uh, we've now gone back to moving around the world <clears> post pandemic <throat> so many trips I took in 2022 and I learned so much from them which I did not know uh, for the last two years when we were stuck in our homes so as as much information as you can soak up as possible is important I, I could keep talking but they, these are the I love the things that are coming to mind well, it's obvious that you are a lifelong learner and a, and a man who is passionate about learning and uh, asking questions. Uh, and I love the fact that uh, you are so passionate about helping young people getting started in their career. And I, I know this, not just from the words that you've shared with us today, but uh, our good friend, uh, Drayton Wade, has had so many good things to say about you. And uh, you had a huge impact on him as a, a professor and uh, you helped him get uh, launched in a f phenomenal career. Uh, and so I've been able to see your work, uh, your mentorship, your coaching uh, firsthand with Drayton. 
so I, I know you're having a, a positive impact in the world, and that's exactly what we need. I'm a, I'm a big I believer. Just, I would just say a couple of words on Drayton, because you mentioned him three times. I haven't responded, so I feel bad if I don't do it now. <laughs> but yeah, he was an outstanding student um, at, at LSC. And uh, I guess if I use him as a typology of, of what success can be is he was very humble. Uh, there was no arrogance to him. He was very focused on his studies. He he knew that this was a very new learning experience, a new environment. He had not studied abroad before. Um, so it was a challenge for him, but he embraced it. Uh, and he his, his work ethic was also second to none. Uh, and it was, it was an evolving process for him. But I, I could see him grow each week. He became more and more confident, more expressive. Uh, and again, he kept his humility, which I think is so uh, significant. And he is doing so well, as, as we all, as, as you know, and you, um, and I'm, I'm very proud of him. Well, likewise. I've got two more questions for you. Uh, what are you reading currently? Uh, books that you've read over the last year that, that you've really enjoyed and have had an impact on you or a book that you're reading right now that you'd like to recommend to uh, any of the listeners? Obviously, your book's going to be at the top of the list for 2023, but until they can get their hands on that, uh, what's another good book recommendation you might have? Wow. Well, I tend to read a huge amount for work um, when it comes to understanding global issues, whether it is looking at transnational terrorism threats or it's looking at great power competition, uh, looking at state actors such as Russia and China. I have to say that sometimes because of the intensity of my work, the books that I try and enjoy in the evening just to get out of that uh, focus of, of work tends to be sports related okay. uh, because it's in many ways a a distraction from what takes place. So uh, the football team that I support or soccer team, I should say, uh, Celtic, they're based in, in Scotland. So I uh, am a very avid reader of books that are by the players and the staff that, uh, so that played or managed uh, the club. So one book I'm reading right now is by the former uh, coach of Celtic, Martin O'Neill. Uh, who was very successful at the club. I'm really enjoying uh, that book a lot. I believe there are several items that my family have bought me for Christmas, all Celtic-related, so I'm going to be devouring those during uh, the break. Uh, I wish I could provide something more insightful That's perfect. Uh, on, on geopolitics. <laughs> no, look, we're, we're in the midst of the World Cup right now, so these are going to be great book recommendations. And Do you have a prediction on who's going to win the World Cup? It's down to Argentina and France, correct? Yes, that's correct. And it's it's a, it's a hard one to call. I think that if we're looking at the, we're talking about history, the arc of history would perhaps suggest Argentina because Lionel Messi, who is arguably one of the greatest footballers of all time, he's won everything at a club level, whether it's uh, league titles, cups, uh, the Champions League. Uh, he's won the uh, Copa America, which is the largest competition in South America. But the thing that's eluded him is the World Cup. And if he is going to be on the same uh, level as 
the other great Argentinian player, Diego Maradona, or the Brazilian legend, Pelé, then he perhaps has to have that World Cup. And this is his last competition. Mm -hmm. His last game, in fact, is the World Cup final. So in many ways, it would be good yeah. if uh, he, he, he can lift that trophy. Uh, France has a very good chance too, but perhaps I'm being a bit, how do I put this, uh, annoyed that France beat England in, <laughs> in the quarterfinals. So perhaps I'm, I'm going to support Argentina as a result of that. We have a lot of friends who are annoyed by that. And I've got, I have a lot of, Br uh, British friends and boy, they, they, they were none too pleased, but it's going it, to, it's shaping up to be a phenomenal, uh, world cup final. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, my final question for you, thank you so much for your just your time, your investment, your your generosity. Um, the the final question that I have been asking guests recently is if you had the ability to give a State of the Union address to the American people, um, and maybe if and if you want to contextualize this since you're in the UK, if, if uh, to um, the folks there in the UK, if you had a chance to give a State of the Union address, what would you say? Okay, well that's. A great question also, uh, and I'm thinking about it very quickly. <laughs> the, the one thing I would say is there's so much kindness and decency in the United States. If you look at the generosity of the average American, it is significant. It is overpowering. And I've seen that around the world. I give you an example of, we were talking about Afghanistan, the a lot of U.S. soldiers uh, who were there, they wanted to provide support to the Afghan schools because they didn't have the finances or the support that they needed at the time. So a lot of these U.S. soldiers would organize events back home with their families who would collect crayons, books, all kinds of things which they would ship and then send to um, Afghanistan. It's one of those things that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's it's one of those stories about America, mm. which I, I I think should get more focus because mm. it it is part of the culture of of giving in the U.S. Uh, that, in my opinion, is is very heartwarming, mm. and regardless of where people stand politically. Uh, I think one of the things that, that saddens me is when politics comes into it and, and people fight and divide over the different beliefs that they may have. And uh, the thing that is so important is that you need to have a strong U.S. Mm. where you can actually uh, be that force of, po of positive good around the world. Uh, because when the United States is strong, the the challenges and the threats uh, uh, recede. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is not that go to war or go, go into conflict, but a positive United, United States mm -hmm. is something that's so important. And very often you kind of see in America people tearing each other apart based mm -hmm. on their political uh, beliefs. And it's sad to see that. Mm -hmm. So if I was making that State of the Union address, I would appeal to people in the U.S., that you've got so much good going on inside your country mm -hmm. that focus on those, focus on your strengths, which you don't necessarily appreciate, mm -hmm. but which can have such massive positive effects around the world. Uh, and 
better to focus on the positives than than the negatives uh, because there's so much negativity uh, that's that's sort of proliferated in the last few years uh, that it it all it does is it emboldens our uh, the entities that actually pose a threat to our well-being to us to to our safety and and therefore uh, very often it's the positivity, the good traits, and the generosity of the American heart and spirit that I would appeal to and I think uh, should come out more uh, and will will actually have a much more positive effect for everybody. What a beautiful, heart-touching, and inspiring final word for this podcast. I, I appreciate those those genuine comments and how you led off with Asking America, reminding Americans about their generosity, and to continue to be a generous people, and I just it, it brings me back to you and how generous you have been today with us. Uh, you're a very very busy man, uh, involved in so many uh, amazing works uh, globally, and for you to invest a little over an hour with us to to share your insights and perspective, to educate us, to help us think differently, to ask questions. Uh, to dig a little bit deeper. Um, it's been a blessing for me. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a blessing for everybody who ha- uh, listens to this podcast. And so for you and your family, I just want you to know, Dr. Gohel, that I am going to be praying for blessings for you, for your family, especially around these holiday seasons. And I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for uh, your time uh, and your wisdom this afternoon. Oh, well, thank you Bob, for those very kind words. And I've very much enjoyed our discussion. It's uh been a very important uh, journey uh, in looking at so many different issues. It's also made me think about things that perhaps I wasn't necessarily looking at in the same way as I will be uh, from now on. So I'm, I'm grateful to you and it's, it's, uh, I've enjoyed it. The time has flown by. Well, God bless you, my friend. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sajin Gohel, for taking the time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to great podcasts. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That's always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we'll be back next week with more.